Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In 1857, America had a newly elected president, James Buchanan. Before the inauguration, he came down to Washington, D.C., where he stayed at the city's largest hotel, which was known as the National Hotel. But something strange happened to him, and he became violently ill. So did other people at the hotel, and some of them, including high government officials, died. Many people, including the president's own physician, thought it was poison, and rumors ran wild. Was someone trying to poison the new president and his allies? Was a sinister conspiracy behind the event? Was it the work of a serial killer? Or... Could it have been a mysterious, unknown disease? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the deaths at the National Hotel? The deaths at the National Hotel were a genuine mystery at the time. They seemed, at first, to be the result of mass arsenic poisoning aimed at President Buchanan and his associates. However, on further investigation, the disease theory is far more likely the 19th century explanation of miasma is wrong, but precisely what the disease was remains a mystery today. You're listening to episode 255 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mysterious secret society known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. The 19th century was a time of secret societies. Men banded together for secret purposes and took secret oaths. One of the most famous secret societies was the Knights of the Golden Circle. They began before the American Civil War, they continued throughout it, and they left enduring mysteries that are unsolved to this day. Who were the Knights of the Golden Circle? What were they trying to achieve? And what mysteries surround them? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, why did you want to do today's mystery? For a few reasons. Uh, first, secret societies are interesting. Second, it can be a little uncommon to have good information about a secret society because they're, well, secret, and that makes it hard to get good info on them. But we do have pretty good info about the Knights of the Golden Circle. And third, because this episode will set us up for other mysteries, such as precisely who was responsible for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, whether John Wilkes Booth got away after the assassination, whether Confederate forces hid stashes of gold to fund a second civil war, and what involvement Jesse James and his gang may have had. The Knights of the Golden Circle are claimed to have been in all of those mysteries, and we'll have future episodes on each one, though you'll have to wait until then to see whether I conclude they were really involved. That's something I still have to research. Also, even though I haven't seen the popular National Treasure movies, the Knights of the Golden Circle apparently play a prominent role in the second of the films, so people are still aware of them. I also want to mention up front 
that today's story deals with a controversial period in American history that deals with some sensitive subjects, like the evils of racism and slavery. As always on Mysterious World, in describing historical events, including evil ones, I seek to describe them in a factual, non-emotional manner because this lets us better get at the truth, and I have it on rather high authority that the truth shall make you free, even if it means acknowledging some unpleasant truths about historical figures. So when is today's mystery set? Essentially, it overlaps with the period of episode 124 on Death at the National Hotel, which was set in 1857. You'll recall from that episode that the late 1850s were a time of very strong tensions in the United States. The election of President James Buchanan in 1856 was very contentious. Tensions were building towards what would eventually uh, become the Civil War, which, by the way, has been known by multiple names. If you do research on the Civil War, you'll also run into it being referred to as the War Between the States, which is a neutral term. The late unpleasantness, another neutral term meaning the recent unpleasantness. The War of Rebellion, a title preferred by many Northerners at the time. The War for Southern Independence or the Second American Revolution, which were titles preferred by many Southerners at the time. The War for the Union, another Northern term. The War of Northern Aggression, another Southern term since the North invaded the South to compel it back into the Union. Mr. Lincoln's War and multiple other titles. Although the war was still several years away, President Buchanan was a controversial figure, and an unexplained wave of illnesses and death broke out at the National Hotel in Washington while he was still awaiting his inauguration in 1857. When that happened, people in both the North and the South accused each other of having tried to poison the new president and his entourage as part of a grand conspiracy, though, as we saw in episode 124, that was unlikely. Still, it's an illustration of how tense things had become. Incidentally, we also talked about this period even more recently in episode 252 on America's first emperor, Norton I, where we learned about how Emperor Norton assumed office in order to try to save America from tearing itself apart because of all the tensions at the time. Let's start today's mystery with a definition. What is a secret society? Well, it's a society or group of people that is in some way secret. The most secret societies would be those whose very existence is secret. Either they remain entirely unknown, in which case they're super successful, or their existence remains at least uncertain or unconfirmed. We can refer to organizations whose very existence is doubtful as type 1 secret societies. Type 2 secret societies would then be those whose existence is known, but who are secret in some other way. For example, they may keep their membership secret, they may keep their beliefs secret, they may keep their activities secret, or some combination of these. A common characteristic of secret societies is that their members make some kind of agreement to keep it secrets. This could be something as simple as making a promise or signing a non-disclosure agreement, but it often involves taking an oath, often in a fancy ceremonial setting, and the oath itself is typically secret. However, we need to be careful about who we refer to as a secret society because every group of people has information that they keep private or confidential. I mean, 
Lots of charities don't publish their members' names. Lots of businesses don't publish the lists of their employees or their customers. Uh, similarly, every business has confidential financial information and usually trade secrets. But you wouldn't call the Red Cross a secret society, you know. So we don't want to call every charity or business one. And we need to be careful and reserve the term for those that are unusually secretive or more secretive than normal. Setting businesses aside, voluntary secret societies that men would join were very popular in the 19th century. Why was that? Part of it was a cultural fad. Uh, people are always joining social groups. Uh, they need something to do when they're not working or spending time with their families. They need socialization. And so they join voluntary groups of people. Uh, for example, I've been a member of multiple dance groups. Men in particular have historically banded together in brotherhoods or fraternal organizations from the Latin word frater, which means brother. These have included groups like the Masons, the Shriners, the Knights of Columbus, the Elks, and of course, the Loyal Order of Water Buffaloes from Bedrock. And yes, we will be talking about the Masons in a future episode. Such fraternal organizations uh, were always, after work, a way to get out of the house and go hang out with other men for a while. Uh, meetings would often involve drinking and carousing, and often they'd pursue some charitable goal, too, perhaps as a way to justify hanging out with the boys at a local man cave to their wives. So we're really doing all this charitable work, honey, you know? Um, although women also had their own ladies' societies. Well, in the 19th century, it became a fad to make these fraternal organizations secret, adding an element of secrecy and mystery to them, which improved their branding and made them more attractive to men. And since men like doing macho things, they also frequently branded themselves as knights. That's why, for example, we have the Knights of Columbus or the Knights of the Golden Circle in this case. This was particularly uh, because knighthood was remembered nostalgically at the time and had been popularized uh, in the writings of Sir Walter Scott, such as his book Ivanhoe. But it also was because knights were manly and did manly things. And so the Masons linked themselves to the Knights Templar, and we got the Knights of Pythias, the Knights of Columbus to give Catholic men a thing to do, and others, including the Knights of the Golden Circle. And let's talk about the Knights of the Golden Circle. Who were they and who founded them? The Knights of the Golden Circle were another of the 19th century men's fraternal organizations. Their exact origin is a bit uncertain because secrecy, uh, but they were founded by a man named George Bickley. And I have to say, George Bickley doesn't sound to me like the name of the founder of a sinister secret society. It sounds to me more like the name of a mild-mannered accountant, but he did found a secret society. Bickley himself has an interesting life history. He was born in 1823 in Russell County, Virginia. His family was poor, and his father died of cholera when he was seven years old. His mother apparently was rather adventuresome and did not pay much attention to her son, and so Bickley ran away from home at age 12 to make his way in the world. He was a fast talker and a bit of a trickster, and this helped him survive. In 1848, he also got married and had a son, but his wife passed away two years later in 1850 when he was 26, and he placed the son with relatives. At this point, Bickley was back in Virginia and working as a country doctor. 
Specifically, he was practicing phrenology, the discipline of making diagnoses based on the bumps on your head. We talked about phrenology in episode 230 on analyzing Seventh-day Adventist prophetess Ellen Gould White, and phrenology was considered a respectable medical discipline at the time, though now it's considered a pseudoscience. In 1851, Bickley moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he became a professor at the Eclectic Medicine Institute. Eclectic medicine was a form of alternative medicine that incorporated herbal and botanical cures, and to get his position, Bickley lied about his medical credentials, saying that he'd studied at prestigious schools, including the University of London, where he allegedly claimed to have studied under the famous physician John Eliotson, though that wasn't true. Bickley also became a prolific author and publisher, writing numerous articles and books, including a novel called Adalaska, or The Strange and Mysterious Family of the Cave of Genreva, which he published in 1853. And a fascinating thing about his book is that it's an anti-slavery novel. The basic plot is similar to Harriet Beecher Stowe's popular novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out the year before in 1852, and which was itself credited with helping promote abolitionism and the eventual beginning of the Civil War. So bear in mind that Bickley is himself the author of an anti-slavery novel. Also, the same year that the novel came out, Bickley had a very happy event. In his book, Knights of the Golden Circle, author David Keene explains, In early 1853, the ambitious Bickley freed himself from the mundane need to earn a living. He married Rachel Dodson, a wealthy widow and scion of Cincinnati's Kinney family of bankers. He soon took a leave of absence from the Eclectic Medical Institute and moved to Rachel's family farm near Portsmouth, Scioto County, in south-central Ohio. But this unbounded domesticity wouldn't last forever. Bickley's entrepreneurial pastimes were suddenly interrupted in 1857 when his wealthy wife discovered that he'd been secretly trying to convert her substantial assets to his own name. She got her banker brother to kick Bickley off their Scioto County farm. The pseudo-physician was forced to return to Cincinnati and resume teaching at the Eclectic Medical Institute. So they divorced. Bickley also had become politically active in the Know Nothing Party. Originally, the Know Nothing Party was officially called the Native American Party, and after 1855, it became known as just the American Party. However, it was rather secretive itself, and when members were asked about it, they were supposed to say, I know nothing, which led to it being popularly called the Know Nothing Party. What the Know Nothings are famous for is their anti-Catholicism. They believed that Catholics were engaging in a vast conspiracy to take over the United States through immigration from places like Ireland and Germany, and that bishops and priests controlled a lot of Catholic voters who would use their votes to infringe Protestants' religious liberty, declare America Catholic, create a new inquisition, you know, fun stuff like that. So they were opposed to Catholicism and immigration. For a time after the collapse of the Whig Party, the Know-Nothings were the main alternative to the Democratic Party, but they quickly faded from the scene, and the Know-Nothings weren't the only secretive political group around at the time. There were various political groups that were full-blown secret societies, both in the United States and elsewhere, such as in Europe, where they were playing a role in the political revolutions of the time. 
Groups like this were the inspirations for the Knights of the Golden Circle. When were the Knights of the Golden Circle actually founded? Well, according to Bickley, they were founded on Independence Day, July 4th, in 1854 in Lexington, Kentucky, which is interesting because it was the year after his anti-slavery novel came out. The original group was just five men, but they grew quickly. One of the reasons the Knights grew is that there was another secret society called the Order of the Lone Star, which had been founded back in 1851. David Keene explains, During his sojourn across the South, George Bickley was somehow able to convince the leaders of a pre-existing Southern society called the Order of the Lone Star, the OLS, to merge with his Knights. This had truly an exponential impact since the OLS had already had more than 15,000 members and at least 50 chapters spread across 10 southern states with large concentrations in Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Alabama. It also had chapters in northern port cities, including Baltimore and New York, where it operated out of Tammany Hall in the Empire Club. This merger with the OLS suddenly transformed Bickley's nascent KGC into a truly powerful force with far-flung members and prestige. So the Knights of the Golden Circle, or KGC, suddenly became a quite large and influential group. One of the characteristics of men's secret societies in this period is that they tend to have a lot of pomp and ceremony. Was that also true of the KGC? Yes, a lot of men's fraternal organizations had fancy uniforms that they'd wear. The Masons wear fancy clothes, and so do the Knights of Columbus. And the Gold, Knights of the Golden Circle did too. It apparently incorporated elements meant to look like part of a knight's armor, and they had a special hat that looked kind of like a knight's helmet, but with a big pointy triangle and crescent moon on it. And they'd apparently wear this costume at some of their meetings. Getting dressed up for the occasion apparently was part of the fun for them, like it is in other men's groups. A lot of these groups also have special passwords, codes, signs, and handshakes known as grips. Did the Knights have those? Absolutely, and I have to say I've always found this aspect of things rather comical. Uh, if you're part of a serious clandestine organization like the American CIA or the British MI6, you might need a code for sending secret messages and maybe a password for recognition purposes, but all the passwords, codes, signs, and special handshakes of this group have always struck me as a bit much, rather like boys playing cloak and dagger rather than what you really need to conduct clandestine operations. But other men's groups had these things, and so the knights needed them too. They were contained in what was known as the group's ritual, and they revised the ritual periodically during their existence. But as the Masons found out, if you write down your ritual, it doesn't say stay secret. In fact, leaders like Bickley would sometimes publicly quote from the KGC's ritual, and we know a good bit about it today. To understand the ritual, you need to know how about how the knights were structured. So how was the organization arranged? Basically, there were, they were organized into three levels. The first level, which was the largest, uh, consisted of ordinary members. It was known as the Knights of the Iron Hand, and it was envisioned as a kind of army. Uh, First-degree members were to be soldiers and officers, who would accomplish the group's military goals, which we'll talk about. The second degree was known as the Knights of the True Faith. This was the support level, whose job was to provide the army with what it needed, so it dealt with commercial, 
and financial matters, and its members were men with money. The third degree was known as the Knights of the Columbian Star. Columbian, in this case, is not a reference to the nation Columbia. Instead, it's a nickname for the Americas, which, of course, were discovered by Christopher Columbus. So you can think of this, in effect, as the Knights of the American Star. In any event, the Knights of the Columbian Star were the highest rank. They set the organization's overall goals, and they were the most secretive part of the group. In fact, their part of the ritual was not written down much of the time. Incidentally, the Knights of the Columbian Star also were called the American Legion, although they had nothing to do with the modern American Legion organization. Those were the three overall levels that members could hold within the group. Each local chapter might have members from each one of them, or at least from the first two. Each local chapter, by the way, was called a castle, in keeping with the knighthood theme. So if you joined the Knights of the Golden Circle, you'd become the knight of a castle or the local chapter that you joined. Let's talk about the ritual itself. From the portions that were eventually leaked or made public, what do we know about their ceremonies, like their secret passwords, grips, and tokens? These were part of your training as a knight, and they were explained at the meetings by a man known as your captain. Uh, part of the way they tried to keep these things secret was by using a code that was based on numbers, but it didn't work very well because each number had a single meaning. For example, the number one meant a first-degree knight or a knight of the iron hand. The number two meant Mexico and so on, and former members of the organization explained what all the numbers meant, so everybody knew what the ritual meant when it was leaked. In any event, here's what the captain would tell you about the secret gestures and such. I will now give you the signs, grips, password, and token of the first degree of the KGC. This degree has a name, which I may now give you. It is the One, Knight of the Iron Hand. The first great sign of the order is thus made, seven, hands open, palms touching, and resting on the top of the head, fingers pointed upwards. The answer to this is eight, open hands touching shoulder where epaulets are worn, elbows closest to the side. These are battlefield signs and are not to be used under ordinary circumstances. So if you're out on the battlefield and you want to signal that you're a knight of the golden circle, you put your hands together like you're praying and then stick them on the top of your head with the fingers pointed upwards, which seems completely ridiculous to me. Then if someone wants to answer you and signal that he too is a knight, he touches his shoulders with open hands with elbows drawn in, which also strikes me as completely ridiculous. Fortunately, you don't have to use those ridiculous signs much, only when you need to be recognized as a knight at a distance. For ordinary use, to signal that you're a knight close up, you have a different set of ridiculous signs. The common sign of recognition is nine, right forefinger drawn across upper lip under nose as if rubbing. The answer, ten, with forefinger and thumb of left hand, take hold of left ear. So I'm guessing a lot of guys who just needed to scratch their nose ended up accidentally identifying as knights and getting a Carol Burnett, I'm so glad we had this time together response. To gain admission to a working castle or the room of any KGC, give 11, one distinct rap at the door. 
the sentinel on duty will then raise the wicket and demand the countersign, which is twelve. Soldiers always lettered except at castle door. So if you want to get into the castle, you'd give a distinct rap on the door, just one of them, which doesn't sound that ridiculous, but I wonder what you were supposed to do if the doorkeeper didn't hear your first rap. And then I gather you were supposed to say soldiers, which in some circumstances you had to spell out. S-O-L-D-I-E-R-S. You will then pass to the center of the room and give the true sign of the KGC. It is 13. Left hand on heart, right hand raised. This will be recognized by a bow from the captain when you will at once take your seat. So once you're inside, you give the true sign of the KGC, left hand on heart, right hand raised. The captain then bows to you and takes you to your seat. But what do you do if you need to vote during a meeting? What do you do then? The sign of assent is 14, both hands up. Of dissent, 15, one hand up. So if you want to approve a motion, you raise both hands. And if you want to disapprove of a motion, you just raise one. Now we come to the secret handshake. The grip is 16. Press with thumb one inch above second knuckle. So to signal that you're a knight when shaking hands, you move your thumb an inch back from the other person's second knuckle. That's the knuckle of the person's longest finger. And that's a really good secret handshake because that couldn't possibly happen by accident. Finally, we have a physical symbol or badge that you can use to signal that you're a knight. The token 17, golden circle encasing block hands closed on scroll, the whole to be the size of a dime. Every member may wear the sign of his degree. And it appears that there may have been different badges for different types of members. They also may have changed over time. In any event, now that we're all ready and know what we need to do to get into the local castle, David Keene explains what we'll see when we get there. Knights in a given area were organized into a lodge called a castle that often met at a local meeting hall, barn, or warehouse, such as those along the Richmond waterfront. A sentinel guarded the entrance to prevent unauthorized intrusion, and members were required to supply the password for entry. The regular castle meeting began with a prayer by the chaplain. The treasurer then collected dues, part of which was forwarded to the KGC's national headquarters. Following this, the captain entertained new business and gave a 15-minute pep talk filled with pro-expansion and southern rights rhetoric to fire up the attendees. At the end of the meeting, the Knights of the Military Order engaged in drill, supervised by the captain or another drill master. So the captain would give us a talk about all the threats to our way of life and what we need to do to counter them, and they then take us out and have us do military drills. These military drills were done in public, by the way, and they were quite popular. A lot of guys liked going out and putting on showy military drills, looking all smart and military and proper for the public. They also were, in theory, meant to prepare you and teach you how to be a soldier. And the military still uses drills for recruits today, though we've long since given up using anything like drills in actual battle. Now, all of that stuff about signs and codes and badges and secret handshakes is kind of sophomoric fun. But now let's come to the more serious stuff, like what the ultimate goals of the organization were. And they didn't tell that to everybody. 
you had to be a member of the highest and most secretive third degree. Who got to belong to that group? In practice, it would have been the most wealthy and influential men, but that's not reflected in the actual requirements for office, according to the part of the ritual that was leaked. Candidate must be familiar with the work of the two former degrees. Must have been born in 58, a slave state, or if in 59, a free state, he must be a citizen, 60, a Protestant, and 61, a slaveholder. A candidate who was born in 58, a slave state, need not be 61, a slaveholder, provided he can give 62, evidences of character as a Southern man. So, bad news for you, Dom, you weren't born in a slave state, but a free one. And while you are a citizen, you aren't a Protestant or a slaveholder, so they wouldn't let you into the Knights of the Columbian Star. Similar. Similarly for me, while I was born in the South and thus don't have to be a slaveholder, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be able to provide them with the kind of evidences of character of a Southern man that they're looking for since I oppose both racism and slavery, and I'm also not a Protestant. You'll recall that George Bickley had been a member of the anti-Catholic Know-Nothing Party, and he certainly didn't want Catholics in the leadership of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Upon becoming a member of the third and highest degree, you also had some obligations with respect to Catholics and were required to promise. I also promise to report to the KGC Governor General of the state the names of all 67 Roman Catholic ministers in my county as well as all 31, northern teachers, and no 69, foreigners, or 68, abolitionists, shall ever receive this third degree if I can prevent it. One negative vote only being necessary to reject anyone from receiving this degree, which vote must be taken before the candidate has been approached. And should the KGC succeed in 82, conquering and southernizing the whole or any part of 2, Mexico, I will do all I can to prevent any 67, Roman Catholic, from being appointed to any office of profit or trust. And even in the 72, the U.S., I will always give the preference to 60, a Protestant, and especially to 57, a member of the third degree. In 2, Mexico, I will endeavor to cause to be open to the public all 84, nunneries, monasteries, or convents. And there shall be no advantages to 67, Roman Catholics, which is not equally accorded to 60, Protestants. The 50, Bible, shall be adopted for use in all public schools, and any 85, priest, who shall be detected in 86, gambling or violating the ordinances of religion, shall be expelled from 2, Mexico. Any minister holding any place under the government must be 60, Protestant. So they were planning to take over and southernize Mexico. In the meantime, don't let any Catholic into the Knights of the Columbian Star, and once we take over Mexico, don't appoint any Catholics to positions of trust or profit. Always give preference to Protestants, de-establish all the Mexican nunneries, monasteries, and convents, expel any Mexican priests who don't honor the Protestant understanding of public mores, And all government ministers in the future of Mexico must be Protestant, despite how many Catholics there are in Mexico. And incidentally, as we'll hear next uh, episode, 
at this time in Mexico, they were having their own anti-Catholic political internal problems. So um, the goals of the KGC in regards to putting down Catholics in Mexico were actually shared by some Mexicans. So a lot of emphasis was put on the first degree or Knights of the Iron Hand doing military drills. What was all that drilling and training preparing them to do? Well, the KGC, like the political societies in secret societies in Europe, had ultimate goals that were quite serious. Uh, The basic one is embedded in its very name, Knights of the Golden Circle. So what is the Golden Circle? It's not, as you might think, some kind of abstract symbolic idea, like a symbol for truth or justice or spiritual enlightenment or something. Instead, the Golden Circle referred to territory, huge tracts of land that the KGC wanted to get control of. One of the big ideas at this time in American politics was a concept known as manifest destiny. Manifest meaning obvious, so the idea of manifest destiny was the idea that America had an obvious destiny. We were a young, growing country, adding new states to the Union regularly, and it seemed obvious to people that we were destined to spread across all of North America, which we eventually did. The continental United States now stretches from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, the Knights of the Golden Circle had a variant on the concept of manifest destiny. They wanted the U.S. to expand so that it went down through Mexico to Latin America and then back up through Cuba and the Caribbean so that it formed a circle. And that's the circle in the Golden Circle concept. Why was it called a Golden Circle? Fundamentally, because it was thought this would be a really prosperous arrangement, uh, that there would be a lot of economic opportunity that way. So it was a prosperous golden circle, and the knights of the golden circle who helped bring it about would all be financially well off, and many of them would get rich. So it would be a golden circle, especially for them. But there was another more sinister side to the golden circle idea, and one aspect of this had to do with slavery. Even though there were a lot of knights of the golden circle in the north, it was fundamentally a southern organization focusing on southern ideals, and One of those was slavery. In episode 124, we talked about the tension that existed in the United States in the 1850s. We also talked about it in episode 211 on Harriet Tubman. Slavery was a key issue in the tension that had been building up between the North and the South, and a key issue was how many states allowed slavery versus how many did not. The Southern states were afraid that as America expanded westward, more free states would enter the Union than slave states, and eventually the northern states could simply outvote the southern ones and implement any laws and policies they wanted, not only relating to slavery but to anything else. They were afraid of losing the political autonomy they had, and this was one of the things that led to the Civil War. When, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president without a single electoral vote from the South, it was considered a sign that the North had achieved political dominance over the South, and so the Southern states wanted to get out of the Union, even though Lincoln promised to leave the institution of slavery alone. In his first inaugural address, Lincoln stated, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. 
I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I had made this and many similar declarations and had never recanted them. Alarmed by what they saw as the growing political power of the North, the Knights of the Golden Circle therefore wanted to head off its political dominance by expanding the nation southward into Mexico, Latin America, and the Caribbean, and adding these new territories to the Union as slave states so that the North couldn't simply outvote the South in the future. For example, George Bickley said that Mexico alone could provide 25 new slave states to be added to the Union. And that would mean, incidentally, changing the laws in at least some of these places because slavery was illegal in Mexico. So the Knights would have to revise that law if they wanted to add Mexican territory to the U.S. as a slaveholding area. And it's interesting that George Bickley would start this organization favoring expanding slaveholding territory when he himself was the author of an anti-slavery book modeled after Uncle Tom's Cabin. However that may be, the Knights initially just wanted to add these new slaveholding territories to the Union to have them become part of the United States. But later, after the North did achieve dominance, they switched to a two-part goal. First, they thought that the South should secede from the Union and form a new nation, which came, became the Confederate States of America. And then they thought that the Confederacy should continue to grow southward until it incorporated the entire golden circle of territories. How did they want to go about acquiring these new territories? They had two strategies, and they changed over time. The first strategy was known as filibustering. Uh, today, people are familiar with the word filibuster as a reference to a legislative procedure in the American Senate, uh, where one or more senators stop a bill from being voted on by taking up time with endless speeches. They're acting like pirates who seize control of the assembly when they do that, and that's where the word filibuster comes from. It's based on the Dutch word vrebouter, which means freebooter or pirate. So filibusters were originally pirates, and pirates didn't always operate on water. They could also mess with people on land. So the term filibuster came to be used for land-based incursions, where Without authorization from a state, one group of men just up and invades a country. Individual filibusterers were often motivated by the thrill of adventure, political ideology, or the promise of getting rich. And the overall goal of the filibuster campaign was typically to set up a friendly regime. Americans engaged in a lot of filibusters in Latin America in the early 1800s with the most famous being known as the Filibuster War, which was started by the American physician, mercenary, and child prodigy, William Walker. He graduated from university summa cum laude at age 14, and then went on to an extensive career in filibustering. So imagine Doogie Hauser becoming a land pirate. In 1855, he invaded Nicaragua and set himself up as the president of the country, though he was forced to resign in 1857, and he was executed in Honduras in 1860 because, well, he was a filibuster. In any event, the Knights of the Golden Circle's first plan was to start filibustering in Mexico. However, there was a problem, which was that the United States had a neutrality law that forbade filibustering, and U.S. authorities 
could shut you down and put you in jail if you tried to gin up a filibuster. So the Knights came up with a new plan. Instead of conducting a filibuster, they would set up a colony in Mexico and then become powerful enough to do another Texas. That is, they'd move into Mexican territory, become powerful, start a revolution, secede from Mexico, and eventually join the United States, the way Texas did. Why would the Mexican government let them set up a colony in their territory after the experience they had with Texas? At the time, Mexico was having a lot of political troubles, as we heard in episode 252 on Emperor Norton. In fact, Mexico was in the middle of a civil war with conservative and liberal factions. Uh, The Knights were hoping and planning that the liberal faction would invite them into the country to set up a colony, and then they'd help the liberals win the civil war, and then do as they pleased afterwards. At first, this plan seemed promising. Negotiating with the liberal factions in Mexico were going well, and they reportedly arranged a preliminary deal according to which they would take 15,000 members of the Knights of the Golden Circle down into Mexico, and as a reward, each knight would receive a minimum of 610 acres in which he could farm, ranch, or mine in order to make a living. Meanwhile, in the United States, things were also looking good for the plan. President James Buchanan was talking publicly about an American military force being used to help settle the Mexican Civil War. And as justification for that, he cited problems that were being caused for American citizens in Mexico, telling Congress, Outrages of the worst description are committed both upon persons and property. There is scarcely any form of injury which has not been suffered by our citizens in Mexico during the last few years. Peaceful American residents occupying rightful possessions have been suddenly expelled from the country in defiance of treaties and by the mere force of arbitrary power. Vessels of the United States have been seized without law, and a consular officer who protested against such outrages has been fined and imprisoned. The Knights of the Golden Circle were so impressed by President Buchanan's words that they put them in their ritual and had the captain read them to new recruits. But in the spring of 1860, the plan fell apart. Negotiations with the Mexican liberal faction encountered problems, deriving the Knights of the legal basis they needed to set up a colony. That wouldn't have stopped them, though. The head knight of Texas and Arkansas, a man named Elkana Greer, had thousands of men behind him, and George Bickley, had been recruiting others for the project from neighboring states like Louisiana and Alabama. But the move to Mexico ended up not happening. Worse for Bickley, there were charges being lodged against him within the Knights. How did he deal with that? Bickley was indeed in trouble. Amid all the difficulties of getting the Mexico project off the ground, there were charges made against him that he was a charlatan and a fraud. Further, he was being charged with financial irregularities and stealing membership dues. Some of the KGC members from Louisiana and Alabama even declared Bickley to be expelled from the organization. But others supported him, and he called a special meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina, which ended up clarifying his status with respect to the group. When it comes to the outcome of the meeting, Keene reports, The KGC convention held at Raleigh, North Carolina from May 7th to 10th was orchestrated to allow Bickley to save face, but there was no question that he was stripped of much of his authority. Bickley was allowed to keep his position as president of the American Legion of the Columbian Star, which was now described as the KGC's political wing. 
He was no longer president of the KGC as a whole. Bickley was not reinstated as commander-in-chief of the Knights Army. The convention decentralized the KGC organization, vesting prime authority in each of the KGC's state regimental commanders. The state commanders were given the power to directly receive money, enact bylaws, and appoint their subordinates. The KGC's centralized staff was now assigned to assist the state commanders rather than Bickley. So Bickley stayed in the KGC, and he was still its leader in a sense. He also was cleared of any wrongdoing, but he had a lot less authority, and others took on more responsibility. How large was the Knights of the Golden Circle at this time? It's hard to say for sure because of the secrecy of the group. It was certainly large, and it had some very influential members. Based on our current knowledge, it appears that multiple state governors in the South were either members of the KGC or were sympathetic to it. For example, Bickley publicly identified Mississippi Governor John Pettus as a KGC member, and he publicly claimed multiple other governors were members as well. It also appears that multiple members of President Buchanan's cabinet were KGC members, and it was widely believed that the vice president, John Breckinridge of Kentucky, was one of the Knights. Incidentally, Breckinridge was a presidential candidate in 1860, and he came in second with the most electoral college votes after Abraham Lincoln. So if he had won, the Knights might have had a fellow Knight as president. The organization itself, though, had thousands of members across the country. Keene reports, As of mid-1860, Bickley claims, the KGC numbered 48,000 members and its 14,000-man army could be mustered to 100,000 if conditions require. It's hard to know just how accurate those numbers are. For example, by saying that they could muster 100,000 men if needed, Bickley is probably imagining what would happen if they had their existing members go out and do a massive recruiting push for soldiers. But Keene did some calculations based on what's known from other sources, and he concluded that the 14,000-man army is in the ballpark and is not unreasonable. However, that 100,000-man army might soon become necessary because all this was happening in 1860. That was the year that Abraham Lincoln would be elected president, and that would bring the Knights of the Golden Circle what may have been their greatest victory. So before we continue our story of the Knights of the Golden Circle, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Steve C., Giles C., Sharon W., Josh T., and Patrick D. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So Jimmy, how did the election of President Abraham Lincoln affect the fortunes of the Knights of the Golden Circle? In several ways. Uh, One was that it caused a reorientation of their efforts and which goals they were pursuing at the time. 
After Bickley was reaffirmed as leader of the KGC, he and others were still working on the project of establishing a colony in Mexico. Even late in 1860, they were still planning on this and trying to get ready to move a bunch of men there. Uh, they planned to do so late in the year, and in the summer of 1860, Bickley uh, predicted that the flag of the KGC would be flying over Mexico City by January 1st, 1861. However, as things started getting closer to the presidential election in November, people started having second thoughts. It looked like Lincoln might get elected, and they started thinking, you know, we may need our men here in America to deal with the Lincoln situation, which was one of the reasons the mass movement to Mexico ended up not happening. Of course, we know that after Lincoln was elected, the South seceded, the Confederacy formed, and the Civil War happened. What did Lincoln think was going to happen when he was elected? He didn't believe that this series of events would play out. Many Southerners had been making remarks about secession for years, but nobody gets elected by saying, I want to become president so that I can fracture the Union and we can have the worst war in U.S. history. Uh, like politicians in every age, Lincoln had to promise peace and prosperity and paint a rosy scenario. So Lincoln apparently could not allow himself to believe that this would happen. When he was asked about it on the campaign trail, he promised that the South would never secede. He even appealed to the fact that he was born in the border state of Kentucky, which was considered Southern, even though he'd moved to Illinois when he was 21. But because he was born in Kentucky, he could say, look, I'm a Southerner myself. I know how Southerners think, and I can assure you the South will never secede. This is all just talk. It'll blow over. But he was dead wrong. And the KGC played an important role in getting the South to secede. In fact, it may have been their biggest success of all time. How did they play a role in Southern secession? One of the things that you have to understand about American history is that opinion is never unified in a region. Uh, for example, today, California has a reputation as a liberal state and Oklahoma has a reputation as a conservative state. But there are conservatives in California and liberals in Oklahoma. In 1860, opinion was similarly divided in different parts of America. Not everybody in the North was an abolitionist and some Northerners favored slavery. And not everybody in the South was pro-slavery. Some were against it. When it came to the question of secession, opinion was even more divided. Regardless of what they thought about slavery, a lot of people in both North and South were proud of America, the first democracy in the modern world, and they didn't want to see it fall apart. Not only would that have been an embarrassment, because other nations like our former British overlords could look on and say, you see, democracy is unstable. The U.S. was bound to fail. Better to stick with monarchy. It also could mean economic hardship and greater vulnerability to military attack from other nations. Further, they recognized that if the South did secede, that the separation might not be peaceful. The North might try to compel the South back into Union which is, in fact, what did happen, and it resulted in the worst war in United States history. Even without adjusting uh, economic damage by the inflation the government has caused, in terms of body count alone, the Civil War is by far the worst war in U.S. history. Far more Americans were killed in the Civil War than in World War II, for example. 
And while many people didn't realize how bad the war would be, many did realize there was a high likelihood of war, if for no other reason, because Abraham Lincoln didn't want to go down in history as the president who broke the Union and proved democracy a failure. That would ensure his place in history as a colossal presidential loser. And so he he was unlikely to just want to let the South freely leave. But many did not want to have to go through a war. So there were Southern sympathizers in the North who didn't want a war. They were known as Copperheads. And also people in the South who didn't want a war and were pro-Union. As a result, even though there was a lot of pro-secession sentiment in the South, it wasn't certain what each given state was going to do. How did the Knights of the Golden Circle respond? By pivoting from their efforts uh, from colonizing Mexico to encouraging southern states to secede. They did this first in Texas, where the governor, Sam Houston, was a unionist who did not want to secede. He was unlikely to support secession efforts, so the KGC decided they needed to force matters. They had already been functioning as a kind of secret police force in some areas, such as Texas. For example, in October of 1860, Bickley gave a speech in the state capital of Austin, and he was challenged about the group's secrecy by a retired judge named George Washington Pascal. Pascal was a slave owner and a conservative Democrat, but he did not like the Knights, and he didn't want Texas to secede from the Union. Keene reports that during Bickley's public presentation, Pascal then focused on Bickley's frequent references to the KGC as a domestic police system. He charged, I have understood that it has been said the order acts as spies upon travelers and even marks baggage, and that baggage has come marked to this city as suspicious. Is that so? To this, Bickley simply replied, It is. He declared that as to baggage searching, the spotting of men, etc., there ought to have been such an order 30 years ago. It was intended for the nutmeg men, the Yankee peddlers, and other suspicious characters. Does anyone object to these sentiments and practices? Bickley's glib admission sent Pascal into a tirade. Pascal accused the KGC of being a secret police agency, one which establishes a police above the law. He shouted that the KGC was an institution of the Order of Robespierre, which will plunge us into a sea of revolution worse than the bloodiest days of France. It cannot, it will not be tolerated. It arrays itself with the misguided partisans who threaten to overthrow the government should they not elect their candidate. And it proposes by secret means to proscribe all who will not fall into their revolutionary purposes. So, despite the fact that he was a slave owner, Judge Pascal was very opposed to the Knights and their activities. He didn't like their functioning as a secret police in Texas, and he warned that they would try to compel the state into revolution, which is exactly what they did. After Lincoln's election, the KGC, who had already been acting as a secret police force, started intimidating people in Texas to get anyone who didn't favor secession to shut up and stay quiet. They also produced literature advocating secession, and they then held public demonstrations in favor of it. Keene reports, The estimated 8,000 knights in Texas played an equally instrumental role in applying the political pressure and strong-arm tactics 
needed to precipitate Texas's secession. KGC operatives orchestrated many of the mass pro-secession meetings and torchlight parades held throughout Texas during late November and early December. In Austin, John Ford spoke fervently from platforms draped with the Lone Star flag and helped break up meetings called by unionists. In Tyler, Knights George Chilton and John C. Robertson, a Harvard-trained lawyer, engaged in similar pro-secession agitation, while the KGC leader John A. Wilcox led a meeting orchestrated by the Knights at San Antonio. In Galveston, Congressman Guy Bryan churned out propaganda that urged Texans in other areas to select a slate of delegates. Judge Roberts embarked on a related trip across East Texas in support of the secessionist program. U.S. Army Major John Sprague, who was then serving in the Lone Star State, said that the display of force and the harmony and secrecy provided by Texas's 8,000 Knights hold in subjugation the sentiment and conduct of the entire population of the state. The record shows that the KGC, through its Good Old Boys Network, played a significant role in the secession of Texas, as well as the capitulation of the Western U.S. Army in the state. By applying coordinated local pressure through intimidation and militant action, the KGC was able to force the convening of Texas's extra-legal secession convention, influence Texas's legislative representatives to provide a cloak of legitimacy for the convention's actions, and orchestrate the seizure of the federal forts and property in Texas. Then, having su succeeded in helping Texas secede from the Union, the Knights exported the model to other states. For example, they were very successful in helping Virginia secede. And although they failed to get Kentucky to secede, their efforts on behalf of the secession movement were probably the secret society's greatest success of all time. It isn't fully clear how decisive their efforts were. There were a lot of other people and groups working for secession in the South, but the Knights definitely contributed to making secession happen, and it was a success for them in that sense. What other efforts did they pursue? Well, the District of Columbia, that is Washington, D.C., had been the headquarters of the Knights during 1859 and most of 1860. They'd been openly drilling there near the White House, and one of their plans was to seize the city, to take control of the nation's capital, and prevent Abraham Lincoln from being inaugurated. In fact, one of the other presidential candidates, Stephen Douglas, who represented the northern part of the Democratic Party and came in third in the electoral count, had warned about this. Keene explains, During the fall 1860 election campaign, Stephen Douglas, the presidential candidate of the northern wing of the Democratic Party, had warned that a widespread and intricate conspiracy existed in the South that threatened to take over the U.S. government through an internal coup d'etat as early as November or December 1860. Douglas feared that a combination of anti-Lincoln Southerners and Westerners would try to take over the U.S. government and name John Breckinridge as de facto president with President Buchanan's backing. The South and West would then sanction the Breckinridge-led government and seek recognition from the U.S. Army and foreign powers. Stephen Douglas may not have been accurate in all his suspicions, but there was a plot to seize Washington. Uh, now, today, presidents are inaugurated in January, but at the time, presidents were sworn into office in March. So the KGC had a few extra months after Lincoln's election to get things done. 
In January of 1861, they were drilling in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, getting ready for the takeover. They were doing so as part of companies known as the National Volunteers and the National Rifles. Keene explains what happened. Colonel Charles Stone, an ex-Army officer who was appointed by General-in-Chief Scott as the new Inspector General for the District of Columbia and who had control of federal weapons, soon got wind of the National Rifles and National Volunteers' plans for seizing the federal installations. Stone said that assertions were made at the Washington meeting of the National Volunteers, indicating that there were 1,500 men who could be depended on to take the city and that they had been promised arms from Virginia's former governor, Henry Wise, through his son-in-law, Dr. Alexander Y.P. Garnett. Stone quickly assigned detectives who infiltrated the district's existing militia companies and set about organizing new loyal ones. When National Rifles' Captain Schaefer stopped by Stone's office to obtain his previously granted commission as a major, Stone insisted that Schaefer first take a loyalty oath, which Schaefer refused to do. Stone then stripped Schaefer of all rank, which resulted in Schaefer's resignation, as well as that of the other pro-secession members of his National Rifles Company. Dr. Boyle of the National Volunteers also stopped in to request federal arms. In reply, Stone insisted on a muster roll containing the names of the 100-plus members of the district's volunteers. Dr. Boyle came back and presented it, but Stone refused to provide the weapons and kept the muster roll for further investigation. Boyle's National Volunteers Company soon dispersed and left for Alexandria, Virginia, where Boyle was commissioned as a major in the Confederate Virginia Volunteers during late April 1861. The KGC's plot for the seizure of the district's federal installations had been foiled by Stone's decisive action. The Knights also apparently tried to assassinate Abraham Lincoln before he could assume office. Lincoln had been traveling to Washington from Illinois by train on a whistle-stop publicity tour. That's where a train would blow its whistle as it was approaching a station. People would gather at the station, and the politician would step out on a platform of one of the train's cars and make a speech to the people before the train would go on to the next stop. That's what Lincoln was doing on his way to be inaugurated in Washington, but he got word that there were assassination plots afoot against him, and some of them came close to succeeding. For example, Keene reports that this happened in Ohio. As Lincoln's train prepared to leave Cincinnati, a railway attendant spotted a small carpet bag under Lincoln's seat in the president's car. Upon opening it, he discovered a grenade set to explode within 15 minutes with a force sufficient to kill everyone in the car. The bag was carefully removed and the grenade disposed of. The perpetrator was never identified. So whereas we don't have evidence that people had tried to kill uh, the previous president, James Buchanan, people now were trying to kill Lincoln upon his inauguration. Some of the people watching out for Lincoln on this journey were from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which had been founded by Scotsman Alan Pinkerton, who was personally supervising the case. Keene picks up the story. Once Lincoln's whistle-stop excursion reached Philadelphia, he was informed by two separate sources that a verified plot to assassinate him was being planned by a band of conspirators linked to the Knights of the Golden Circle. On Thursday night, February 21, Pinkerton finally met with Lincoln and told him that a militant group of 15 to 50 men, led by extremists such as Cipriano Ferrandini, 
planned to overpower his carriage as it passed through Baltimore and assassinate him. Pinkerton said that dedicated paramilitary groups outside Baltimore would simultaneously blow up the railroad bridges and cut off communication. Pinkerton strongly recommended that Lincoln secretly head to Washington City, according to the alternative itinerary that Samuel Felton, the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, had worked out. This report was corroborated by another source, and afterwards Lincoln reluctantly agreed to change his route to Washington, and they also used some subterfuge to keep him safe. On Friday, February 22nd, Lincoln spoke to Pennsylvania's legislature in Harrisburg, but the reception planned for that evening was called off. The telegraph lines from Harrisburg to Baltimore were temporarily disconnected, and Lincoln sped back to Philadelphia in a special one-car train. There, Lincoln donned an old overcoat and soft felt hat and boarded the last sleeping car of the PWBRR's night train to Baltimore, accompanied only by his heavily armed bodyguard, Ward Hill, Lamont, and Pinkerton. Lincoln arrived in Baltimore at 3.30 a.m., and they transferred him to another train to Washington, where he arrived at 6 a.m. Southern newspapers called him a coward for doing this, but he avoided being assassinated at least for now. What happened with the Knights of the Golden Circle once Lincoln was inaugurated and the war began? Well, the South needed an army, and that's what the Knights had been training to be, so they largely joined the Confederate Army. There were some attempts to have them join as groups, so that a given unit would be composed entirely of KGC members and have its own KGC officers. Uh, George Bickley particularly favored doing that, but most knights joined individually or were otherwise folded in to regular units. What happened to Bickley himself? He also joined the Confederate Army, where he served as a surgeon. Remember, he was a doctor of sorts, under the authority of General Braxton Bragg. In June 1863, Bickley applied to Union forces to be allowed to pass through their lines and go to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he claimed what he had a home. This was odd, but not unprecedented, because there were Northerners fighting in the Confederate Army. In fact, during the war, people would sometimes change sides and switch which army they were fighting for. So federal forces could think it a good thing if a Confederate officer decided to just quit and go home. But they were still suspicious of Bickley. When they questioned him, Bickley said that he was not George Bickley, the famous head of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Instead, he was George Bickley's nephew. So he wasn't his own grandpa. He was his own nephew. They uh, let him through the lines, but they were suspicious enough that they had a detective tail him. And in July, the detective arrested him in Al New Albany, Indiana, at which time they discovered Bickley had KGC paraphernalia and pamphlets in his belongings, as well as letters confirming who he really was. He was then taken to Louisville and put in solitary confinement. Keene states, Bickley's capture was widely reported in the press and helped to spread the rumors that KGC subversive agents were still operating widely in the border states and the north. In August 1863, Bickley was secretly transferred to the state prison in Columbus, then to Fort Lafayette in the harbor of New York City. During his two-year incarceration, Bickley forwarded a series of appeals for his release to national and state officials, including one day Abraham Lincoln, in which he offered to instruct KGC members 
to support Lincoln in the upcoming 1864 election. Bickley was not granted a civil or military trial or even a hearing since the Lincoln administration considered him dangerous. After the war, Bickley was released in October of 1865, and he died two years later in October 1867. He was buried in Greenmount Cemetery in Baltimore, Maryland. What about the Knights of the Golden Circle? What happened to them? While the Knights in the South were fighting in the Confederate Army, there were rumors that in the North, they simply changed their identity and reemerged as a new rebranded organization called the Order of American Knights, or OAK. The OAK became a successful organization, and it was quite similar to the KGC. For example, it also had three levels or degrees of membership. It also had signs, passwords, and secret oaths, just like other secret societies. It did have temples instead of castles, though that was just a terminological change. Allegedly, its goal was to help the South in various ways, including peeling away additional states from the Union by creating a Northwestern Confederacy between Ohio and Minnesota. It was a popular organization, and some Northern KGC castles switched their membership to become members of Oak. Northern spies inside the Oak reported that they had been told it was a rebranded, reorganized version of the KGC. And the organization did feed northern fears of southern agents in their midst. But David Keane concludes that it was really a separate organization that just happened to be similar. In 1864, the Order of American Knights then changed its name to the Sons of Liberty. Confederate agents had made contact with the Sons of Liberty, and together they pulled off some acts of sabotage and things like that in the North. But by November of 1864, they realized that the Sons of Liberty had been infiltrated by Union spies, and they wouldn't be able to help the South much further. As far as the Knights of the Golden Circle themselves, at some point, federal authorities declared them a treasonous organization, which caused them to become even more secretive. And we don't really know the details of what happened to them from that point forward. There are claims that they helped John Wilkes Booth assassinate President Lincoln. There are claims that they helped Booth escape and assume a new, a new identity. And there are claims that they buried large stashes of gold and weapons to help the South fight another civil war in the future, in keeping with the saying, the South shall rise again, meaning the South shall start another war in order to secede in the future. They even allegedly set up a system of secret guardians tasked with protecting the gold and the weapons, and it's claimed that this network of secret guardians might even exist today, almost 160 years later. However, these are mysteries that we'll have to wait for future episodes. Now, what can we say about the Knights of the Golden Circle from the faith perspective? Oh, much of this should be obvious, but just to be clear, racism, bad, like we said in episode 211 on Harriet Tubman, God doesn't care about your skin color any more than he cares about other cosmetic issues like your hair color or eye color. Similarly, slavery, bad, anti-Catholicism, bad, aggressively taking over other people's territory, such as through a filibuster, bad. 
subversively taking over other people's property, such as founding a colony just to gain a foothold for conquest, bad. So the Knights of the Golden Circle had quite a good bit of badness going on there. Jimmy, what's your bottom line about the Knights of the Golden Circle? The Knights of the Golden Circle are a fascinating secret society. Uh, they were similar to many European secret societies in that they had political goals they were seriously trying to achieve. And they were successful in meeting some of those goals, such as getting southern states to secede after Lincoln was elected. However, they failed in other goals, like conquering new territory in Latin America and the Caribbean and taking over Washington, D.C. They may have ultimately achieved the goal of killing Abraham Lincoln if they were working with John Wilkes Booth. They may have been able to help Booth escape and get a new identity. They may have buried caches of gold and weapons, and they may be guarding them today. But those are topics for the future. What further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to David Keene's book, Knights of the Golden Circle, Secret Empire, Southern Secession, Civil War. Mark Laus's book, History, uh, A Secret Society History of the Civil War. Also, an authentic exposition of the KGC Knights of the Golden Circle, or a, oral, a history of secession from 1834 to 1961, illustrated. Also, information from Wikipedia on the Knights of the Golden Circle and George W. L. Bickley, information on the KGC from the Texas State Historical Association, and also a review of David Keene's book so you can get another perspective on it. Excellent. So that's it from us. What are your theories about the Knights of the Golden Circle? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7, for the video and animation work they do on this episode. Uh, you can, they do video and animation work for hire. So if you have a need for that, do check them out. You can look at the kind of work they do by going to the video version of Mysterious World at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I, um, I am trying to grow my channel. Uh, we're currently trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers. So I'd really appreciate it if you would hit the like button to let the algorithm know to tell other people about the video. And also if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the others that I do. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, this week we talked about the Mexican War of Reform that the Knights of the Golden Circle wanted to intervene in and the anti-Catholicism in Mexican government. Next week, we're going down to Mexico itself to talk about their country's history. And specifically, we're going to be discussing a young man named Toribio Romo, who was martyred by the anti-Catholic government of Mexico. Today, he's a Catholic saint, and we're going to be discussing a fascinating mystery that continues to exist about him. Very good. 
Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, on your favorite podcast app, or like Jimmy said, at his YouTube channel. You should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion in our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 255. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by... Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash trek.